1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: You're listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. Well, today is a jam-packed episode, so I'm just going to get stuck in straight away because I don't bring you today one author interview or two. I'm bringing you three absolutely first-class, top-rated author interviews. So, well, I don't mean my interviewings are, but the authors are top-rated. You know what I mean. Honestly, so chuffed to bring you today. You're going to hear interviews with Anne Cleaves about her latest book, The Raging Storm. Janice Hallett about her latest book, The Christmas Appeal. Peter Swanson about his latest book, The Christmas Guest. Plus, I'm going to review two extra books, which are absolute beauties. The first one is Resurrection Walk by Michael Connolly. And the second one is called Around the World in 80 Games by Marcus Desotoy. So those are your books. I can't wait to talk to you about them all, all winners as far as I'm concerned. So the first book we're going to talk about is The Raging Storm by Anne Cleves. My goodness, I love this book. And let me tell you a little bit more about it. When Jem Roscoe, sailor, adventurer and local legend, blows into town in the middle of an autumn gale, the residents of Greystone Devon are delighted to have a celebrity in their midst. The residents think nothing of it when Roscoe disappears again. That's the sort of man he is. Until the lifeboat is launched to a hoax call-out during a raging storm and his body is found in a dinghy, anchored off Scully Cove, a place with legends of its own. This is an uncomfortable case for D.I. Matthew Venn. He came to the remote village as a child, its community populated by the barren brethren that he parted ways with. So when superstition and rumour mix and another body is found in the cove, Matthew soon finds his judgement clouded. As the stormy winds howl and the villagers cut off, Ven and his team start their investigation, little realising their own lives might be in danger. I enjoyed this book so much. I listened to it as an audiobook and loved that. It's just got every, it ticks all the boxes. It's got the pace, it's got the who done it and why done it. It's got all these reveals and it's just got these characters that you care about. I mean, top of the game, isn't she really, Anne Cleese? Just fantastic. But enough about me. Let's talk to Anne now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Anne Cleves, whose latest truly fantastic book is The Raging Storm and welcome to the podcast. It's
3: lovely to be with you Philippa.
2: Oh it's lovely to have you on. I mean The Raging Storm is the third in the series of the the Venn books but I would say if there is someone who hasn't read all three of them it felt very much that you can just come in at this book straight away. You don't have to start at the very beginning. Is that a deliberate move of yours? I hope so. It
3: it's always quite tricky because you don't want to assume that the readers have read the other two, but you definitely don't want to overload readers with backstory. So it's one of the more difficult bits of writing a series, I think, to, to write a book that will stand as a standalone, but works for people who want to see a character develop over a number of books.
2: And when you're writing about your characters, are they clamouring in the in the back of your head about who to write next? Is it a Venn book? Is it a Vera book? You know, do they pull your attention in different ways?
3: They do a bit, but I've kind of got into the rhythm of alternating between series. I think I might get a bit bored if I were just writing the one character. So I do love coming to the end of a Matthew Venn book and thinking, oh, great, I can go home and spend a bit of time with Vera now. And then when I come to an end of of Avera, it's, oh, grand, I can go down to North Devon and go and visit my friends and walk on the beaches and pick up where Matthew Venn left off. So I, I do love that sense of alternating stories.
2: Do the characters talk to you, though, when you're not writing or are you able to lock the door on them? It's
3: the only time I'm the god in my universe, so I'm always in control, I think. They don't write the stories themselves. I write the stories, but I do hear them when I'm writing dialogue. Except when I'm writing Vera now, I hear Brenda Blessing, the actor who plays her, mm. because she does it so well. She does those witty put-downs so brilliantly. And sometimes I'll write a bit of dialogue for her or for Vera. and think, oh, I hope the scriptwriter keeps that in because Bren's going to love saying that.
2: So that's interesting that having seen the actors actually take on a role, that slightly changes the the way you approach the writing.
3: I think especially with Vera, because there have been so many, I think, 13 Mm. series now. And Brenda is such a great actor. She's a double Oscar nominee. She worked with director Mike Lee. And her way of working, of developing a character is to get to know them very, very well it's the opposite of the method. She's setting up a separate character, researches them, knows them. And her way of doing that is to go what she calls go back to the source material, which is back to the books. So as soon as we've got a proof of a book, it goes to Brenda to read. And so she really, I think, understands the character in a way that very few actors in popular drama do. And it's almost like having a representative on set because if there's a new scriptwriter who does something that, that Brenda feels our, we, we think of her now as our Vera, would do, then it has to go back. It's sent back for rewriting. So I don't need to look at scripts because Brenda's there keeping an eye on things.
2: Oh, that's wonderful that you you have that relationship with her and that that trust that you don't need to be concerned about what Absolutely how you No,
3: i think yeah from the beginning i think the, the lead script writer at first was a guy called paul ruckman and he came up and spent some time in northumberland with me and because we had that time of me showing him the places where the stories are set and again that idea of human geography of understanding just the wide palette in northumberland of places where you can set stories And I knew right from then that he understood the character and it would be okay that I could just trust them to get on with it.
2: Interesting. When you were writing The Raging Storm, did you know who done it and why when you started? Or is just literally everything revealed to you as you write?
3: Yes. I write like a reader, I think. So I'll write. I had this idea for someone just blowing into a a village in a storm and I was quite interested in the idea of celebrity and how celebrity isn't always useful. And quite often it's the people like Matthew Venn who lack charisma, but who have intellectual rigor and honesty. They're the people that we need sometimes. We don't need the flash people and the glamorous people. And so I just had that sort of idea, I think, knocking around in my head. And I started off with Jem Roscoe, who is rather glamorous and a bit of a celebrity, blowing into this village. And then, yeah, I need to know what's going to happen next, so I write the next chapter, and then I need to know what happened next, so I write the next chapter. The bit about the lifeboat rescue was triggered because when my husband and I were first married, we lived on a tiny tidal island, a nature reserve, and he was very young and reckless in those days and did take out a boat that wasn't seaworthy to ring some birds on a a bit of rock not far from where we were living and got swept out to sea. And I wasn't there, but there happened to be a bird watcher on the island who knew exactly what to do because he'd been in the merchant navy and called the Coast Guard and they got the lifeboat out and he was rescued. But only just in time, he was being swept out to the Irish Sea. And so I do have have a very personal gratitude for the RNLI.
2: And talking of scenes like that, you know, the tension and the the pace I was listening to the audiobook as I was driving to pick my daughter up from university I was actually quite sad that I arrived that the journey was quite short and no (laughs) roadworks because I couldn't keep listening do you it's just again just come naturally with the the balance of tension and pace the sort of the highs and lows in the story or is that ever something you have to go back and edit sometimes you have to
3: edit I think but that's more about choosing the right words and make sure that a sentence says what I want it to say as vividly as possible uh, and also that I know talks about making the words sing and I think that's what we're doing when we're editing we're going back and doing that I think if you read a lot and you can't be a writer if you don't read a lot and you get a sense of, of timing and pace and how that works I think it's a bit like being a stand-up comedian you know how to judge the pacing of a joke when the tagline comes and it's it becomes instinctive, I think, if you read enough.
2: So bearing that in mind, what is the best day of when you're writing a particular book? Is it the day you get the initial idea for chapter one? Is it the day you finish writing? Is it the day the book's published? If you had to choose one day that's the best, what would it be?
3: Oh, I think it's before you have started and you've got that blank screen and at that point you can believe that you're going to write a really great novel. I mean, a couple of paragraphs said you know that it's not going to happen, but you have that sense of excitement and of doing something new. And then I always love seeing the page proofs because that's when it looks like a proper book.
2: Is there a pressure, though, on being Anne Because we all expect you know, 10 out of 10 gold star, incredible books. Do you sometimes (laughs) wish, want to publish under a pseudonym just to take the pressure off?
3: No, because I don't feel that pressure really, because for the first 20 years of being published, I had no commercial success at all. So I just do it for fun. And I did it for fun then, because I made very little money out of it. Enough. I was published by a mainstream publisher, but certainly didn't get into the bookshops. Mostly went into libraries because libraries had proper book funds then and could buy books in in bigger numbers than they do now. And and I think that's something that I fight for libraries, not just because readers need, I think they have a right of access to stories and books, even if they can't afford to buy them, but also because libraries support new writers and bookshops can't take every, every novel that's published and they're By their very nature, they're going to take the ones that sell well, especially the big chains. So we need libraries to make sure that we get new writers and writers who are doing things a little bit differently and aren't immediately successful commercially to support them.
2: My first job was in a library, my first Saturday job, and it's happy, happy times. Yeah, so so
3: important.
2: But come to the last question, Anne, and it is the most important one on this podcast. It is crucial, so just prepare yourself. And that is, what biscuit (laughs) powered the writing of The Raging Storm? What is your biscuit of choice?
3: I did answer this while I did the Archer's podcast, (laughs) and I am very partial to a dark chocolate digestive.
2: So that's not just Vera's choice, that's your choice as well. That's what you would go for. That's right.
3: It's me inhabiting the character of Vera <laughs> and deciding that my snack of choice is a dark chocolate biscuit.
2: I mean, that's practically a health food, dark chocolate, Anne, I think, really. That's, uh... I th-
3: that's what I think. I tell myself that while I'm having it with my coffee every day.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's just wonderful to talk to you about The Raging Storm and just discuss the books with you. Anne Cleves, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for a great chat. The next book is called The Christmas Appeal by Janice Hallett. Wow. We've all loved the appeal that Janice wrote and she has returned to it again. She's returned to it for Christmas and it's got a pantomime and there's a dead father Christmas. I mean, what more can we ask for? But let me tell you a little bit more about it. Christmas in Lower Lockwood and the fairway players are busy rehearsing their festive pantomime, Jack and the Beanstalk, to raise money for the church roof appeal. But despite the season, goodwill is distinctly lacking amongst the amateur dramatics enthusiasts. Sarah Jane is fending off threats to her new position as chair. The fibreglass beanstalk might be full of asbestos and someone is intent on ruining the panto even before the curtain goes up. There's also the matter of the dead body. Who could possibly have had the victim on their naughty list? Join lawyers Femi and Charlotte as they read the round robins, examine the emails and pore over the police transcripts. Will you discover the truth before they do? And will the show go on? Well, you just can't go wrong, can you? I love the format of The Appeal so much and I love The Christmas Appeal. It's uh, a shorter book, under 200 pages, as often Christmas books are. And it's just a bit of fun. I enjoyed it so much and a light relief to some other heavier books. I just thought it was brilliant. Bravo. Anyway, let's talk to Janice now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, the one and only Janice Hallett, whose latest book is The Christmas Appeal. Janice, welcome back.
4: Oh, thank you so much, Philippa. It's a joy to be back again and talking about the very festive subject of The Christmas Appeal.
2: Yes, I mean... I was both shocked and delighted when I saw that there was going to be the Christmas appeal a return to Lower Lockwood. You've got Christmas, you've got a pantomime, you've got a murder, the perfect combination. But tell me how did this return
4: come? Well, I, I can reveal that it was just as much a shock for me as well because um <laughs> I had no intention of returning to to Lockwood or to writing any sort of sequel to the appeal. It was just that my editor Asked whether I fancied writing a Christmas novella. And it was only when I tried to, when I sat down and started writing about Christmas, that I, I was suddenly right back there. I was right back with a character who had played a very small role in the appeal. And I was suddenly with her and she was center stage. So I, I thought I'd go with it. And wow, it, I enjoyed myself so much looking at these characters and how, how the whole society there, how the little small town, Community has moved on since events of the appeal, and it was like vi- revisiting old friends like coming home and finding out what everyone's been doing, so and I, I thought, well, if I feel like this, the reader will too,
2: absolutely, and you're an accomplished writer, you've written for films, books, all sorts. Have you ever written anything for any medium before that' the Christmas genre? No, never,, mm. and I
4: love Christmas, don't you know, as much as the next person. But I'd never considered writing anything at all about it. For me, Christmas begins on the 1st of December and ends on the 26th. So when I had to start writing a Christmas book in August with the sun beating down on me and you know, people in their bikinis outside, yeah, it was it's quite a shock. I had to put on the Christmas music to get me in the mood. But, you know, the, the minute I did, I was back in the, in the Christmas mind frame in that wonderful, festive, uplifting you know sense of being and this anticipatory the wonderful anticipatory feelings that Christmas evokes in us I think it's all all comes from childhood I feel and um, but yeah I had that for for several months in a row, so i I understand now why people love Christmas and why they they want to celebrate it earlier and earlier each year
2: and, and the other books that you've written since the appeal have all used different mediums, different emails, whatsapp voice memos, all sorts of things. But the Appeal and the Christmas Appeal are, have their own sort of unique type of mediums, I, I would say, the WhatsApps and the emails in particular. Was it easy to jump back into that, having broadened the, the range that you've used in other books?
4: It was shockingly easy. And yes, you're right. The, the <laughs> other two, I'd have moved on, um, particularly with um, the Albert and Angels. I really took on board what I'd learned from the Appeal and the Twyford Code to write that. So yeah, I had progressed quite a bit. So it was going back to that very email heavy with some messages in between sort of medium. But I did want to make it similar to the first book in that respect. But again, it, it was like coming home. And When you think I spent a year writing The Appeal, it was quite a, a big experience in my writing life. And I, I didn't write anything else at the time while I was writing that. So for me, it was like returning to old friends as well. Uh, so, yeah, it is deliberately um, emails. I think. Lockwood are very much um, stuck in their email life and that they're only just getting WhatsApp. So they're just exploring WhatsApp as a means of
2: uh, communication. Yeah, I can't wait to see if they go on to Nextdoor or anything like that. (laughs) Or TikTok, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That would just bring a whole other dimension. And I want to talk to you about the humour in the book because from the very beginning... I was chuckling away to myself because, yes, it's about murder, but it's, it's about people and the, the, the good and the bad of people. Were you laughing as you were writing it?
4: I was very much. I really wanted it to be a fun read. And there's always darkness, I feel like, certainly in the appeal there was. And I wanted to maintain that darkness as well. But I also wanted it to be a really fun ride. You know, they're, they're putting on a pantomime. So, it, you know, it has to have that anarchic feeling that a pantomime might have or a farce might have. So yeah, it was I wanted it to be funny from the word go. And hopefully it is.
2: It absolutely is and one of the first things that just had me laughing was this round robin letter and I believe you're going to read us a little bit from that now.
4: I am. I'm going to get into the character while I do it. Now this this is fun. This is actually the first email in the in the novel. It's from Celia. Have you read the appeal Celia was uh, only small character in the in the appeal, but she's she opens the Christmas appeal. And interestingly, if you're interested in these sorts of things, the first thing I wrote for for this book, and it's what set me on the path to write it, and it's it's her her Christmas round robin, which she's sending out on the first of December. So this is someone who's organised. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so he, here she goes, first of December. It's from Celia Halliday. Dear all. Plunk! Another year of living, laughing and loving. You'll excuse the round-robin email. We no longer send Christmas cards as they're so bad for the environment. More than that, we have such a vast number of friends that writing to you all individually would take far too long. So we only send personal emails to family and those we are especially close to. Now, if you're anything like us, then you faced every challenge that came your way in 2022, picked it up, gave it a wing and firmly knocked it out of the park. Here is a full and fabulous account of our wonderful year. Firstly, our skiing holiday in Val was almost cut short when Joel had some life-changing news. Ta-da! He was made OBE for his charity work. What a wonderful surprise and validation of his selfless, Sacrifice over the years. The award of Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire comes with onerous responsibility. He had to change his credit, debit, library, gym, National Trust, and Waitrose loyalty cards to feature those three little letters he is legally required to place after his name. <laughs> and she, she goes on, that's not the end of the letter, uh, she goes on to tell us how wonderfully her entire family. Have conducted themselves over the year and the fabulous achievements they've um, they've made, and uh, later on we'll we'll get to the truth behind some of those uh, achievements uh, cause it has it does fascinate me the round robin and how we choose to present ourselves and our families in front of our our peer group. And our
2: and I love the use, the insistence of the use of OBE, even in the pantomime program. You know, it, it's not that she's choosing it; it's that you know you have legally you have to use it. I just <laughs> loved that throughout. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> such fun. You don't write yeah. round robins yourself, then, Janice?
4: Do you know, I don't. I don't at all. But I do receive them, and I, I've noticed over the years how they change because when. When someone's family is young, you know, children, that their, their progress through childhood is is punctuated by achievements. You know, they they have they do they achieve things at school, have sporting achievements, exams, they get into college, and it's only when those children reach their early twenties that life starts to set in and things happen. You know, their career you know careers don't start, courses are dropped out of, marriages fail, uh, divorces are got, affairs are had. You know, that life happens. And suddenly that round robin is slightly more difficult to write. And I've noticed that the, they tend to drop off when the family is older because there are, there are things you just don't want to say. Or like Celia, you will put a positive spin on on what you can't lie about.
2: In a way, the round robins are a bit like the modern Instagram stories about how perfect everyone's life is and what you really want to know is that people are having as rough a time as you are just to make you feel a bit better
4: oh absolutely those instagram posts where they show you before instagram and after instagram where they show you the reality and then what they posted on instagram and my favorites the, the reality is is as interesting as what is what is presented
2: and there are two sort of major themes in this book. The one is the pantomime, the Jack and the Beanstalk that they stage. But also, as we would expect from your books, there is a there is a murder. And there is we need to know who's been murdered and why and who and who done it. Those are all we don't want to give any spoilers, but it's at its heart, even though it's a Christmas book and a novella, at its heart it is a, a crime story.
4: It is a crime story. It's about, it's also like the appeal, it's about community. And it's about how people support each other or not uh, at times of um, difficulty and, and hardship, when the chips are down. Because that's the essence of, of community. It's not while things are going well that um, you, you judge people. It's, it's how they behave when things don't go well. And that's, that's one of the key.
2: And did you always know... Who was going to be dead and, and who would have done it? Or did that unravel as you were writing it?
4: No, I never know that when I start. It, it unraveled as I, was, as I was writing. And then eventually when I get to the end, I, I go back and I, I reverse engineer. It, it doesn't come out quite how you read it after the first draft. So yeah, there's a lot of tinkering that goes on afterwards to set things up and pay things off.
2: And it's fair to say you speak with some authority on the subject of Amdram. Uh, like me, you loved doing it. I don't know if you have the time now, but certainly there were times when you when you would and it was a very important part of your of your life. It, it, is it a joy to write about that?
4: It is. And it's kind of nostalgic for me, really, because I, I, as you're right, I don't do um, amateur drama anymore, but I did for 30 years. And it was a huge part of my life. My my best friends in the world were raglan players. My, I met my partner at the raglan players. So, you know, it's, I am a raglan player through and through. And I'm, I'm bringing out, I'm reliving a lot of the, that, those wonderful times through these books that I'm writing. And it is a fabulous hobby. It's, it's all, it's immersive. It's, comp- it takes over your entire life. Mm. Anyone listening to this who's ever put a play on with their friends or in any sort of, um, community will know that, you know, as, as the, um, first night approaches it takes over your entire life you can't think of anything else you neglect your family and friends you have to put that play on on that night and you get so close to the other people you're doing it with because you're going through this experience together when you're in a group you go through that experience whenever you put a play on that could be two or three times a year so yeah you get really close to people and you become a family a drama family and that's wonderful it's all the wonderful things and the terrible things that come with being a family are all played out in that group. So, yeah, it's, it's very nostalgic for me because the group I was a member of ceased to trade, so to speak, about 10 years ago. So, oh. yeah, mm. very sad. Yeah, but we still meet up. You know, we're still a group. We just don't put on plays anymore. We just don't have the the time. We don't have the number of members that you need. Mm. And, um, you know, so we we have our memories and that's uh that's what we we uh, enjoy reminiscing about at the moment.
2: Presumably there were some things that happened that you don't dare put in the book, that, that those stay <laughs> secrets.
4: Of course, yeah. There's, you know, what happens you know, backstage stays backstage. <laughs> <sometimes>.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Which is the best moment for you when you're writing a book? Is it that initial sort of gasp of, I've, I've got an idea and this could work, or is it? When you're writing the book, when you've finished it, or when it's published, what if they had to choose one day, what day would it be? It would be
4: when I've just started the first draft and I'm off and I'm on this wonderful, joyful path of creativity and I'm just writing because I enjoy it. I'm not worrying about the plot. I'm not worrying about where the characters are going. I'm just letting them take me. And that's a really, really pure moment for someone who enjoys writing. I mean, The hard slog comes I and mean, it comes usually towards half to three quarters of the way through where I know I'm I have to head towards the end and the hard work definitely comes at the end when I have to go back and reverse engineer some of the plots that I've come up with and retrofit some of the things that I've put at the end. So yeah, there's a hard slog to be had, but it's that joyful moment when I've just started a new idea.
2: Was it harder, in a way, writing a novella? Because as you've gone on, your books I think have got bigger and bigger, certainly the impression that I get. So was it, in some ways, I would think, oh, a novella would be easier to write, but actually might find it harder when it comes to doing it. Was that the case for you?
4: Yeah, you know, I had no idea when I started it how I would get on because, yeah, you're right, I write long novels. And they are getting longer because I think as you mm. get more, a more confident writer, you, you can handle more story and more characters. And so certainly mine have uh, have got longer. So bringing it back to 35,000 words was quite, it's a bit of a, it felt like a challenge as I started. But as it turned out, no, I was I was okay with it. You know, I suppose in a novella, there is slightly less story. There are slightly fewer characters and it has to tie up fa- rather faster. And that's, so long as you bear that in mind when you start, I I found it okay. So yeah, I didn't know if I could, do it, but I tried and I could. There we go, that's a lesson. Absolutely.
2: Was it always going to be Jack and the Beanstalk? I mean, there's a particular reason why I suppose it it was Jack and the Beanstalk. But did you start out knowing that was the pantomime? Or were there some thoughts about which pantomime you would include?
4: No, I thought of the pantomime first of all. Um, as Sarah Jane is pulling it together, she's directing, she's determined this is going to be the best pantomime the players have ever put on. Um, and it gradually emerged, the rest of the plot It is quite, it really has to be Jack and the Beanstalk um, for the rest of the of the story to, to play out. But no, that was, again, it happened by accident.
2: Is there a pressure for you now, though, because, the, you know, your name is synonymous with good books and the appeal was just extraordinary, the response to it. Coming out with the Christmas appeal, is that, were you gnawing your fingernails even more when it was published?
4: Yes, so. I think I do feel that that pressure of expectation from everybody. And at three o'clock in the morning when I wake up, I feel it most acutely. But when I start writing, I think something happens, all of that falls away. And I can write more freely. I think for me, that's always been the way I have to write without thinking of, of that. I try to write something different every time I, I write a book. And that keeps it fresh for me makes it experimental, which is always something that feels good for me to experiment and explore this format Uh, for myself and the readers. There's always a risk it might not work. There's always a risk some people who liked a previous book might not engage with the current book. But that that experimentation and that exploration is important for me to maintain as I uh, continue this career, which is writing one book after another, as it turns out. So I have to keep it fresh for me And I hope that freshness and invention uh, keeps it fresh for the
2: readers too. And while we like fresh books and fresh thoughts, we also do like returning to Lower Lockwood. So I'm afraid I'm going to ask the question you would hate me to ask. and uh, Is there going to be another return?
4: Well, it's interesting. There's no plans at the moment. And I would have said absolutely not before I wrote The Christmas Appeal. I would have said "No, no, the story finished, surely, at the end of The Appeal. But now I have written this follow-up, I wouldn't rule out in future going back again. Uh, so yeah, there's no plans. I know my next novel is The Examiner. That's that's definitely not set in Lockwood. And I've started the one after that, which isn't. So I know the next two full-length novels will not be set in Lockwood. But as I said, if, if um, the wind was in the right direction, <laughs> I would be <yell> up for it.
2: <laughs> Can you tell us anything about The Examiner? Is there anything you can? Yes,
4: I can. I can. About. I haven't, haven't said very much about the examiner um, yet, but I can say it's set in uh, the world of academia. It's set in a university which is overhauling its art courses to fit in with um, the workplace and the work, the job market. Because as, as there's a big debate about art courses and, and how, what mm. place they have, really, when, if they don't qualify you for a particular job. And indeed, lots of courses are now coming under that kind of scrutiny. So this is an MA, a master's degree course in art, in multimedia art. And we're with the examiner. The examiner is asking us to read coursework and final essay papers from a small group MA to see if his suspicions are correct Mm -hmm. and that one student on that course died and all the others were
2: covering it up. Oh, my (laughs) that sounds incredible. When is it going to be out, Janice? Do you have a date? It's, yes, September 2024. How exciting. That's certainly something to look forward to. We come to the final question, which is the crucial one. And Janice, the question is, what biscuit was powering the writing of The Christmas Appeal?
4: Biscuit? Now, I'm very into at the moment the chocolate-covered flapjack. Yes. And I have to say, I credit the chocolate-covered
2: flapjack with another you know, Christmas appeal. Then we need to order you mass amounts of more chocolate flapjacks for more books because it's wonderful. It's wonderful to read it's wonderful to torch again. Can't wait to hear about what people think about the Christmas appeal. Janice Hallett, thank you so very much.
4: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Philippa. It's been fabulous to come on and speak to you again today.
2: Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Here's a cool fact.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: So The Christmas Guest by Peter Swanson is next. And let me tell you a bit about this. When Ashley Smith, a bright-eyed but lonely American studying in London, is invited to spend Christmas with her classmates' family at their Cotswolds Manor house, it seems like a perfect country idyll. And for Ashley, who records it all in her diary, there's the added romantic potential of her friend's twin brother, Adam, who she thinks could be her wildest dream come true. But is there something strange about the old house, both stately and rundown? What could the motives of the mysterious Chapman family be? And what holiday horrors might be lying in wait? I mean, this is it's a very interesting book because there's two quite different sections Well, there's more sections and it just changed. You think you know where you are and then it changes. Um, It's a beautiful looking book. What's on the inside? Let me just let me open it live. Yes. Beautiful green hardback book. And it's just a lovely Christmas read. So there we go. Lovely as in. Yes, there's all sorts of things going on. But let's talk to Peter now. It is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Peter Swanson, whose latest brilliant book is called The Christmas Guest. Peter, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Very excited.
2: Great to talk to you. I love all your books and I love Christmas. So when I heard about the Christmas guest, people had to hold me back from jumping immediately to get a
0: copy. Is Christmas something you like writing about? I've never written about it before, but I do I love Christmas too. I love the season, I pretty much everything about it. And this this book actually came about. It's interesting. My my UK editor suggested our asked if I had a, a Christmas story in me, because I know that in my UK publisher is Faber and they've done, I think John Banville's book Snow came out around Christmas time. They did a couple P.D. James special collections around Christmas time. So he, he kind of asked for it specifically, and I almost instantly had an idea. So, so really enjoyed writing it. And I also really enjoyed writing a, a shorter book, a book that you could kind of read in one sitting on Christmas Eve. That was a kind of a freeing experience.
1: Yes,
2: I think that's quite forgiving of of you as an author. That when we're sitting there surrounded by people who want to talk to you, and we just want to read a book, it's lovely that we can sit and read
0: something that is a bit shorter and really
2: immerse ourselves into the world.
0: Yeah, I'm a b- I'm a big fan of the short crime novel, and I think it's gone it's gone the way of the dinosaurs. So you, you don't see them so much anymore.
2: Okay, let's start with a summary. Can you give us, without any spoilers, can you what? give us a brief summary of this book?
0: Yeah, so it's set in 1989, and it's about an American student, Ashley Smith, a female American student in, in London for her junior year abroad, as many Americans do. The junior year the junior years in London, and she's not going home over Christmas break because she, her parents are both dead, and she accepts an invitation to an English friend's Cotswold's family's house. So it has a, quite a gothic setup in the sense that she's going off to a country... A country house for the week. And I'll kind of leave it at that. I'll just say that she's, once she gets there, things start being a little bit strange. And we hear part of the story in memory and part of the story through her diary at the time.
2: And I love the fact that you love Christmas time and that you had an idea for the book and were interested in writing a slightly shorter story. But given all of those pluses, was it still hard to write the book or was that a more freeing experience than some of the other ones you've written?
0: Yeah, every book is hard to write in, in some sense because True. you have stops and starts. But I did I, I knew once I once I thought I'd get at this story through the diary entries, I think that opened up a bit of the book for me. And then in terms of putting it in the Cotswolds and doing where and I'm an American, I'm not I've been to the Cotswolds, but in terms of doing that, that was actually quite freeing. I, I wanted to get it right, but I also it was fun to write out of my normal habitat so and I actually wrote it quite fast I wrote it over Christmas I think it was probably two Christmases ago I just sort of sat down and it was snowy outside here and and wrote it during partly the Christmas season but also partly the winter season here in New England
2: oh I love that wonderful actually written at that that time it's based in yeah well. most
0: Christmas books are probably written on like you know holiday in Spain uh, or <laughs> yeah in the midst of summer but,
2: and you included in the book a quote from The Christmas Carol. Was that, from the get-go, was that the quote that you were going to use or did you have others lined up as possibilities?
0: No, I think you always discover things about a book while you're writing it and and what it's about. And I sort of knew the, the basic plot, the sort of criminal underpinnings of the book, what makes it a thriller. And then sort of as you go along, you realise... Um, that there's a ghostly element to the story but also i think the book if if it's about anything deeper than than the surface it's about how christmas time is a haunting time for a lot of people because it always because it's the same every year it brings us back to our childhoods and it's the same songs and it's the same food and the same smell of the christmas tree so and that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing depending on your personal memories of christmas or what might have happened to you in christmas's past so i think that's what the book became about because it's a book about it ultimately is a book about memory and then of course as i'm sort of thinking this i'm like the the first person who ever wrote on this subject did it the best and that's dickens christmas carol which is the the great ghost story but also the a story about memory and and like because that the ghosts of christmas past are literalized in that book but everyone has them to a certain degree which is just remembering past Christmases and where we were at at that time and where we're at now so that's my that was sort of my subtext that I found I was working with and and then the quote the quote made sense
2: yes of course it seems like a good time for me to ask you to read a little from the book I think you're going
0: to read us the first couple of paragraphs just yes And just so you know, so the quote is is quite famous, but I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. And I love that replied the ghost. It's just quite funny. Not only does he have ghosts, but he has ghosts that are replying to him. So this is the beginning, the first two paragraphs. Since I have no family of my own, I'm yearly asked by friends and colleagues to their homes for the Christmas holidays. I always say no, pleading my case that I am perfectly content to be alone for a week. And mostly I am. I read a good book, maybe rewatch some of my favorite films. On Christmas Day, I roast a chicken and eat it with crispy potatoes and Brussels sprouts. My cat, Elspeth, likes a bit of roast chicken too, and I let her sit on the kitchen counter as a special treat. In the afternoon, I often clean my apartment or reorganize my bookshelves. Sometimes, if the weather is nice, I'll take a walk across Manhattan, see if there is a movie playing that looks interesting. I am not completely alone. The doorman, Howard, and I usually find time for a glass of whiskey. And I have a close friend, also without family, who often drops by, although she hasn't for the past couple of years.
2: Fantastic. Did the end story reflect that initial concept in your mind? Or was the the, the plot and the revisions did they significantly alter that initial idea?
0: No, I think that, and I've had that when I'm working on a book and the plot really changes. But I think in this book that I had sort of thought, ahead of the backstory. It's like a lot of mystery stories, it's all about when you reveal things. So there's the the bigger picture of what's happening in the story. And I knew what that was in the background. And that never really changed. But the maybe the the reactions and what some of the things that happened toward the end of the book did change a little, but they were more sort of like I said, there was more of a like a, a ghostly quality to it that that came out more toward the end, maybe inspired by the by the season itself
2: and having written this book this shorter christmas book were you then on the phone to your publishers saying hang on guys every book from now on is (laughs) going to be a shorter christmas book i'm changing everything or were you just like that was a lot of fun but i'll part that and go back now to my usual
0: yeah no i think i'll go back to my usual but i don't know how many christmas stories i have in me but the but the the idea of the the shorter crime novel is quite appealing and i do think i do think that's become a bit of a change. I read a lot in, in older books. I read a lot of golden age detective fiction, but also like mid-century American crime fiction. And books, crime books tended to be shorter. I always give it as, as an example, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, I think is about 55,000 words, and she kills 10 people. So she she does that quite quite briskly, which I like.
2: I've just, having sat through Macbeth, which was a three and a half hour performance, I ordered the book to read the script again and it's less than a hundred pages. So it's, it's amazing how uh, such a story can be so short.
0: No, it is amazing, yeah.
2: Which was the hardest word to write in this book? Was it the first one, the middle one, or the final one?
0: The, the section, or? Yeah, yeah. just... Yeah, it took me a little while to find the voice of of Ashley in the diaries. Although once I got it, we learn a little bit about her that she presents as quite a ditzy American. And then but the diary, of course, is giving her internal thoughts. And I wanted some of that to come across that she has a different surface than than what we see in the diary. But of course, I'm also she's nineteen or so. She's she's very excited about the the possibilities. One of the fun thing about her voice was she's she's quite imaginative. So she's often wondering what kind of story she's in. So she's off to this country house and she's kind of hoping she's in a romance. She's got a crush on the brother of her friend. and But then she's also wondering if she's stepping into a, a quite creepy story as well. So she she once, once I kind of caught that, it took a little bit of time, actually, to get her voice. But once I got it, I think she was fun to write.
2: Is there a pressure, though, being an author with a name as well known as yours for producing really good quality fiction, that when you do something a little bit different that people will, that it's... That you can deliver it and that people will love it. I'm not obviously you can, but is there that internal pressure on yourself?
0: It wasn't in this book. I think no, it was it was sort of freeing. But I but I I do think it's funny because I think at one point I thought I'll let myself be a little cosier in this book than I normally am, and the book ends up really quite dark. And and I thought that that's just me. I think I, I did have the idea that it it, wouldn't be, it comes out a certain way. I have a, a cozy author friend, and she tried to write. Um, a darker psychological mystery. And she said it ended up completely cosy. So I think you are who you are as a writer. I think some readers might be like, oh, is this quite a cosy Hallmark movie type of mystery, like a little more uh, in that end? It's not really in that.
2: Yeah. And I see that more now. A few years ago, Christmas books used to be a cosy Christmas book or a real just... Romance book about someone going back to their home for Christmas and falling in love with the local businessman who, you know, and they're quite average stories. But this is, we're getting different sorts of stories now. And that's what I felt with yours. I just enjoyed it so much because it kept me
0: guessing. Thank you. Yeah. I think, I think here in America, my publishers were quite confused when I handed this book to them. (laughs) And I didn't even think they'd buy it, but they did buy it. And I do think the UK has a little more of a tradition of maybe ghostly. Christmas stories I think you've had a television and you you have all the Christmas specials connected with everything on television <laughs> what we have is Hallmark movies and uh and we have a slew of those but even the, I think your doctor who has often does a Christmas special and they I think they seem designed mm. to sort of scare kids particularly <laughs>
2: yes. which I like
0: there shouldn't be a scary season as well but, but yeah no I think I think I think it's confusing in America we'll see what people think because yeah there's not there's not a real tradition here of christmas thrillers per se
2: and might we see this on the screen next year i could imagine it being done
0: oh it's actually i'm not i don't know how much i can say except that someone's sort of working on making that happening happen and um as as authors are told nothing so we so we just cross our fingers and hope for the best and i heard it sort of maybe moving forward so no promises
2: I'd look forward to seeing it on the screen. Even the strap line on the book, "'Tis the season to be wary." I yeah, that's just a good think. one. That's great, yeah. yeah. So how painful was the editing process of this? Was it
0: easier than some of your other books or just as hard? Yeah, remarkably easy. And I, it was sort of my dream. My dream always is that I turn in a book and I think, oh, there'll be no major edits on this book. And that never happens. But this book was kind of just sort of sent through as is minor edits. And then I can't say what it was, but because of spoilers, but my UK editor did have a a very good suggestion that, that kind of changed a little bit of the outcome of the book. So there was that, but in, but in general, yeah, sometimes sometimes you hand in a book and it's just an enormous amount of work to get it working. And I think maybe because this had, it's, it kind of moves quite fast through the through the plot because it's just this sort of one idea. It's not you get a couple different time periods, but it's not enormously complex in that sense. So yeah, I think it it, it there was not a lot of editing. It's brilliant.
2: Right stuff. I need to ask about your favorite characters. Yes your favorite major character, but also a favorite minor character that you might have included which would you say would be your top major and top minor?
0: I think I did end up enjoying writing Ashley yeah and then and then in terms of minor characters she's in a house sort of full of people and there's a quite there's there's a sort of Drufkin, boozy older novelist who makes a, a pass at her who's quite quite funny but uh, i'll I'll give you him as a minor character i'll give you a better one i'll say Elsbeth the cat who makes a couple of appearances the cats oh, are always my favorite minor characters i love
2: that peter we come to the final question which is one we ask every author on this podcast and it is the most crucial one so okay. please prepare yourself and it is what biscuit or what cookie was powering the writing of the christmas guest
0: here in, in America, we don't call them biscuits. As you've pointed out, we, we call them cookie. And yet, I, I don't know if they're a thing over there, but I'm very fond of the white chocolate macadamia nut cookie. Do you have those?
2: I've occasionally heard of them, but I've never had the
0: opportunity to sample one, but it sounds very nice. There's sort of a variation on the chocolate chip, but the, but in with a white chocolate chip and then often adding the macadamia nuts and they're They're by far my favourite.
2: Fantastic. If that's what works and produces a book like this, then keep keep eating them. It's just yes. wonderful to talk to you and hear more about the Christmas guest. Peter Swanson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So those are your interviews, but don't go away because honestly, I have to tell you about this book. In fact, I have to just stop people in the street and tell them about this book. And that is Resurrection Walk by Michael Connolly. You know, I love Michael Connelly's books and, you know, I love books set in courtrooms. And when I heard that this book not only had Mickey Haller, the Lincoln lawyer in, but it also had Harry Bosch in. I just thought this is going to be great. I listened to it as an audio book and the narration is brilliantly done. Uh, You've got the different voices in there as well. Uh, This is, is this his best book? I don't know, but it's, it's up there at the top. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. Defence attorney Mickey Haller, the Lincoln lawyer, rides the wave of freeing a wrongfully convicted man from prison. Inundated with pleas from incarcerated people claiming innocence, Haller enlists the help of ex-LAPD detective Harry Bosch to find the next case which could result in a resurrection walk. When Bosch finds a needle in the haystack, a woman in prison for murdering her husband a sheriff's deputy, they discover evidence that doesn't quite add up and a department pushed for quick closure in the killing of one of its own. But is this rushed justice or something more sinister? As they face a David versus Goliath court battle, the secrets which could lead to an innocent woman walking free could also mark the end of the halabosh dream team. I've got nothing more to say except this is a brilliant book. Go out, get it, read it. I loved it. It's one of my top books of the year. Very, very, very good. And immediately I've gone and started downloading some of the other audiobooks in the Michael Connolly series. Just what can I say? Excellent. Now, the next book, the final one, Around the World, Nature Games by Marcus de Satoy. I heard about this book because Marcus is appearing at, or by the time this goes out, will have appeared at the Winter Hay Festival on the day I couldn't get there. And I, it just sounded so interesting. And the sort of tagline is, a mathematician unlocks the secrets of the greatest games. So not only does it cover all these different games from around the world, it also gives you tips on how to win. And trust me, trying to beat a teenage child who thinks they know everything And basically, let's face it, they do because they're always beating me. This is gold dust. I mean, the tips. I just need to keep this book sort of under the table when we're playing a game and just keep sort of coughing and then referring to it. I think it's interesting from a geographical point of view to see the the games played around the world, but also to have the sort of some tips (laughs) as to what to do. I just love that so much. And I think if you, you know, obviously we're coming up to Christmas, if you've got somebody in the family, more, it's more an adult, but there's a lot of there's a lot of words, there's a lot of writing. It's a, in a way, a serious book, but very, very helpful. So if you've got someone who's a an adult who's a real fan of board games and the logic, I think they'd love this because I just think it's it's so different, but really speaks to People's interests, and uh, yes, I'm going to be keeping it and referring to it. It's, it's uh, it comes down to tactics, doesn't it? It's always the way strategy, which I'm never very good at being strategic. But this book will help me. So yeah, around the world in eighty games. Yeah, bravo. So those are your interviews. Those are your books. I'm sending you on your way. Back on Friday with a short episode, but also I will be back on Monday and that will be the last episode of the year. So that's exciting. And then be back again the very beginning of February, six-week break for the podcast this time. So, yes, that's me done. What books do I need to just tell you again? I will. The Raging Storm by Anne Cleves, The Christmas Appeal by Janice Hallett, The Christmas Guest by Peter Swanson, Resurrection Walk by Michael Connolly, and of course, Around the World, Innate Games by Marcus de Sautoy. Those are your books I will send you on your way. Just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon.